Can you hear me? No. Oh, no. All right, can you, you can hear me now? All right. Um, welcome, we're going to talk today uh, about the national security agenda. Uh, here we have the world in flames. It's really, I, I've never seen a more turbulent time. Um, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East and just, you know, I, I, I thought there's one lesson you can take away from the Middle East is that things can always get worse. But I never thought it would get as bad as it is now. You know, the eruption of terrorism, the decline of states, uh, it's, it's, there's no telling how that's going to turn out and how that's going to affect the rest of the world. The flow of the refugees, uh, disrupting our allies in that region, changing politics in Europe and even in our own country. China is resurgent and acting up in the South China Sea. Russia is playing all sorts of hijinks, maybe even toying with our own election. Uh, there's, it's, Venezuela is about to implode. Uh, everywhere you look, there are tremendous problems in the world, very consequential. But the new president is going to have to deal with all of these. Uh, the other day, uh, General James Clapper was here on the campus. He's the director of national intelligence. And uh, he was talking about one of the problems that he, as in his role, faces and the new president will have to face is trying to distinguish between which of these are crises and which of them are really important problems. You know, crises can happen and go away, but there are important problems that often get overlooked as we continually manage one crisis after another. And we're going to try to make those kinds of distinctions in right with the New Yorker magazine. Um, I want to, first of all, I should introduce myself. I'm Lawrence Wright with the New Yorker magazine and an Austin resident. Uh, people always seem surprised by that. Um, and I, I'm joined by the, this extraordinary panel today. I'm, I'm really excited to, to be able to speak to the people we have gathered. Uh, to my immediate right, Ambassador Ryan Crocker. Uh, although one might say Ambassador, 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 Ambassador Ryan Crocker because he was Ambassador in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Kuwait, Lebanon, and Syria. Um, yeah. Just to draw a line on the nature of that service and what's asked of it, in three of those six postings, a predecessor was killed. Now Ambassador Crocker is at Texas A&M, and uh, he's the dean. Dingham. Yes. <laughs> we promise not to get into that too deeply, but uh, he's at the George Bush School of Government and, of, of government and Public Service. Um, it's, uh, He's the dean of that school, and it's interesting that the dean of the George Bush School just endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. Uh, Actually, so, I stopped being dean last month. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh, well, so you're free to speak. All right. Well, we're, we're fortunate to have you here. Um, next, we have Julianne Smith, and um, she was dep uh, Deputy uh, National Security Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden and is now at the Director of Strategy and Statecraft uh, at, a, at the Center for a New American Security. And um, she was at this conference that many of us were a part of on national security here at the university and, and uh, people were always talking about her remarks and how, how brilliantly she presented. So we're grateful that you stayed over a few days here. Um, <coughs> Next to her is a person many people in this audience know and cherish is Admiral Bob Inman. Um, now, in addition to the fact that he was the director of the National Security Agency and the deputy director of the CIA, I think what's most significant about Bob in, in our city is that he brought the Microelectronics and Computer Technology Corp, known as MCC, 
to Austin in the 1980s. Uh, Austin at that time was not known as a distinguished location for uh, high-tech industry. That was a trend, that second in our culture. And largely under his leadership, you know, it's become that sector of our city has, has grown to become so important. Uh, he now uh, teaches at the LBJ School, and we're very fortunate to have him as an Austin citizen. Uh, finally, uh, at the end is Will Hurd. He is, um, uh, he, he's the U.S. Congressman from the 23rd Congressional District. Um, he says that it's not the largest congressional district in America, but it's 40,000 square miles. Um, it, it, it takes 10 hours to drive across it at 80 miles an hour. Um, there is, there is some Which is the speed limit in most of it, okay? So, yeah. <laughs> there are some congressmen who can drive across their district in 15 minutes, but uh, he's not representing one of those districts. Um, he is a, uh, also an A&M graduate. Um, and, uh, and also a former CIA agent. Uh, he served in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, and he was in Pakistan during Ambassador Crocker's uh, period there. Um, and um, what's intriguing to me about Will is what motivated him to run for office is that as an agent, he was briefing members of Congress uh, over matters of you know, mainly of terrorism and so on, and they didn't know what the difference was between a Sunni and a Shiite. And he thought, it's time somebody ran for Congress that has some understanding of those differences. So I'm going to begin by going back to that initial question that I framed. Uh, if you're able to go in and, and speak to the incoming president, um, who's going to, no, no matter how experienced or inexperienced they are, they're going to be presented with a bewildering array of frightening problems. And how do you help them sort out which of these things is really important and needs to be attended? All of you. Or would you begin with that? Uh, well, thanks, Lawrence, and good afternoon to all of you. I'll start in an unconventional place, uh, and I'll hark back to uh, the uh, namesake of the school I headed until recently, George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, when President Bush and James Baker took their positions, they kind of set priorities along these lines. Uh, they decided that their first priority would not be in the Middle East or East Asia um, or Eastern Europe it would be Capitol Hill. Uh, this country was very badly split uh, after that election, not because of the election, but because of the uh, opposed positions the parties were taking, particularly on Central America. Uh, this was the time of Iran-Contra, and probably not as bad as today. Mm -hmm. uh, the country was split, the Congress was split. Uh, Bush and Baker recognized, although they couldn't foresee all the challenges, it would be a challenging time. And they had to have more bipartisan support on national security issues than existed. So uh, Baker spent quite a bit of time up on the Hill in the very early months of that administration. Uh, uh, didn't knock down all barriers but got to a point where Republicans and Democrats were talking to each other on issues of critical uh, import for this country. So that when the stuff really got into the fan, uh, the invasion, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, uh, um, the, the fall of the wall, the reunification of Germany, the collapse of the Soviet Union, relationships were there that would put a critical mass of the country behind a particular policy. Well, today that is far more acute even than it was then. So my advice uh, to the next president would be try to do what Bush and Baker did. Try to find some way across this partisan divide uh, because without that it is going to be extremely difficult uh, to deal with the myriad uh, national security challenges that will come down the road. We, we've got to put this country back together 
It is not all going to be kumbaya and sweetness and light. It never will be. Mm -hmm. But we have got to get to um, an ability of the two parties, the administration and the Hill, to work together. Uh, I, I hope that's what the next president does. Julie, would you tell us what, how you would frame it to the new president? Well, I, I think the ambassador had it just right. I would just add to that that um, it's a pretty rich agenda uh, for the next president coming in. Obviously, there are crises brewing all around the world. We have the return of great power politics, dealing with China and Russia, non-state actors like ISIL. We're being introduced almost to new tactics that our adversaries are using, uh, such as the anti-access aerial, anti aerial denial, A2AD tactics that the Chinese and the Russians are using. Um, and the list goes on and on. But one of the things that makes it very difficult for the president to maintain strategic attention is the fact that social media has arrived on the scene. And that means that the public uh, and our adversaries, just about everybody, gets a front row seat on whatever's unfolding in the world. And what that does is it puts enormous pressure on the White House to respond to every little tweet that comes in each and every day. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, when I was at the White House, uh, the ever-famous Coney 2012 video uh, was released that I'm sure everybody saw. Uh, 75 million views. The U.S. government had already undertaken countless efforts to try and capture this indicted war criminal in Africa. But we had not raised the issue at the highest levels of government. And what we found ourselves doing because of this movement surrounding this viral video and all of the questions that we were getting inside the government by our allies, by our partners, by our neighbors, by our family members about what are you doing to capture Coney? This must be an urgent priority. We found ourselves scrapping one day one of our top order issues. We tucked that aside, uh, canceled that meeting in the situation room, and found ourselves meeting in the situation room at the highest levels on capturing Coney. Now, the question in that case was, was that the best utilization of principal's time at that moment? And I think the answer collectively in the room was, no, we should probably be meeting on that other issue that really trumps this one. But in this case, this was an example of a viral video that changed the strategic attention of the entire White House staff and across multiple agencies and set a lot in motion. Uh, and so it gives you some sense of how easily you can wake up in the morning or you can start your presidency with a very detailed list of what you want to set out to achieve in the space of national security. And what you'll find is about two hours into your first day, that list goes right through the shredder. And you're going to be pulled around in 50 different directions. And what might be the priority on a Monday, I guarantee you will not be the priority on Tuesday. And so the advice to the president is, how do you ensure that the national security team, the National Security Council at the White House, maintains its strategic attention and can focus on what's presidential? And leave other priority items, but maybe not as high on the list, to other parts of the US government. And trying to figure out how to restructure our government and reform it, we're in essence using the same national security architecture that we created in 1947. How can we update that system so that it's more agile, more flexible, more responsive, but also enables those people, that team, to serve the president well, which has not always been the case uh, through the last couple of decades. So we don't want the president or his administration to be steered by uh, social eruptions, but to keep their mind on the bigger picture. And Bob, what would you say is the bigger picture for them? If, if I may simply underline Ambassador Crocker's point before mm. answering your yeah. question. And that's to remind this audience, my freshman year in college, 1946, the leader of isolationism in the late 30s, Senator Arthur Vandenberg of Michigan, went to the well of the Senate and said, politics stops at the water's edge. And that's what we critically need to restore if we're going to deal successfully with a great array of problems mm -hmm. in front of us. I'd say, um, 
Madam President, Mr. President, your first responsibility is to the safety and security of American citizens in their homeland and wherever they are overseas. And the greatest threat to those, the current ongoing threat, comes from terrorism, inspiration from ISIS that's been spectacularly successful at recruiting disaffected young Americans by the internet because ISIS appeared to be winning. They'd captured lots of land, they declared a caliphate. So at the top of the list, you need to retake Mosul and Raqqa. And in that process, take away the appearance that ISIS, ISIL, Daesh is winning. And that's probably the most important thing you can do to impact on their successful recruiting. A little further from that, because there's more time to respond, is North Korea. Uh, this latest test, both of nuclear warhead and of uh, longer-range missiles, says that the pathological le young leader is headed toward trying to have the capability with missiles to strike Guam, uh, U.S. bases in the Far East. And there, I step away from the role of an intelligence officer to operating, to say, deploy Aegis-equipped ships out in the Sea of Japan. The next missile launch, wait until it's clear of the mainland and take it down with your ABM capability. Demonstrating to this young leader that you can pour an awful lot of resources but you can't reach the targets you want to hit. Well, what's your counsel for this new president? Well, Larry, thanks for, thanks for being here and, and to the Texas Tribune for, for hosting this. Um, such a great panel to be on. And, and I want to address you know, what, what each of the panelists have said. Um, the difference between crisis and a problem, the crisis is a symptom of the problem, right? And so you have to drill down on the root cause. And let's start with, let's start with terrorism. Um, we, could, we, can, we could capture, kill the number three guy in Al-Qaeda or ISIS as, as much as we want, right? But we have to defeat the ideology. You know, we, we're going to have, you know, let's say when we win against ISIS, there's going to be a new group unless we deal with that ideology. And we are not use, utilizing all the tools that we have available to us. And the point about, listen, um, we have people that went to go fight with ISIS that have come out and said, these people are bad Muslims, they're killing innocent people, it's not paradise on earth, the place is pretty terrible. We need to be using that in our counter-messaging. Mm -hmm. And we also can't do it with the State Department's Twitter feed alone. <laughs> and it, it has to be, look, we, we are a country of some of the greatest brands, right? We, and, and Google, Google Labs is working on how they're taking their ad machine and using some of this counter-messaging to ha make it sticky um, with some of the folks that we're trying to target. Mm -hmm. We have to work <laughs> together. But we also have to change the structure and how we look at these problems. Um, Ambassador Crocker, I had the honor of serving under him. He is the best thing that the State Department has produced since George C. Marshall. Okay? And yeah, you can clap for that. We have some amazing diplomats, amazing ambassadors uh, across, our, across the world. Um, they put themselves in harm's way. They're doing a hard job. They need to be given more authority to execute the plan. Because we don't have the ability to take you know, hours or days to debate a decision because of social media, because of how technology has changed. And our ambassadors need to have a little bit more uh, power um, over all the different level levers of, of national security that they, that they have access to. And that will change, and we will make sure that we're, use, we're leading from the field and not mm -hmm. leading um, from headquarters. And, and my, my last point is, you know, I was in the CIA for nine and a half years. I was an undercover officer. I was a dude in the back alleys at four o'clock in the morning. Um, it was a fantastic job. And I was in the CIA for about a year before when 9-11 happened. I remember what it was like being in the building before that day where people were nervous. They were sleeping in their office, they were sleeping in their cars, so they said, something is going to happen. 
we don't know what, right? And so, so remembering that feeling, and from, from September 11, 2001 until today, intelligence sharing across the federal government has improved significantly. And I, and I will call that horizontal sharing, but we, the, 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 the vertical sharing has not. Um, if you look at any of the issues that we have to deal with today, right, and defending our homeland is, is number one, we, do, we are not getting the right information to the men and women on the ground, local law enforcement. They're the ones that are going to have to respond. And let's use an example, the Orlando killer. The Orlando killer cased four locations that had private security at each one of those locations. Mm -hmm. Was that private security trained in doing suspicious activity reports? Were those suspicious activity reports going somewhere where they can be coordinated? Because the attack cycle has been the same since the dawn of time. You have to case or put surveillance on a location before you try to do something at it. And that's when you're going to disrupt it. And so that's at the point that we need to make sure all the information that we have um, comes together. And, and I will end with this. On September 12th at 0600, 2001, um, I was one of the, few, the first employees in the unit that ended up prosecuting the war in Afghanistan. If you would have told me at that point that it would have been 15 years before another major attack on our homeland, I would have said you're crazy. But the reality is the reason there hasn't is because the men and women are diplomats, are intelligence officers, are men and women in the armed forces, are our law enforcement officers are still operating as if it's September 12th, 2001. Mm -hmm. And these folks, to, to maintain that level of operational discipline is hard, and that's why we need to make sure everybody is supporting the folks that are doing that job, and Congress plays a major role. And I will say this, um, y'all may not know this, um, Ambassador Crocker alluded to this, Washington, D.C. is a circus. And, um, <laughs> but the reality is, there are some pockets that don't get talked about. Mm -hmm. um, I've had the opportunity to serve on a number of congressional delegations overseas with colleagues from, from both sides of the aisle. And it is, it, you would be surprised at how much we work together on forwarding in an American agenda. And so that's happening. We're not focusing on it. You don't hear about it on television, mm -hmm. but it's there and we have to grow it and it must be a priority in, in whichever the next administration is. Well, we, we talk about, you know, situations in you know, dealing with terrorist groups and, and uh, nations that are, you know, uh, maybe working against our interests. And something we often don't talk about, just to, as an example, how many here have a Yahoo account? How many here have shopped at Target? How many have bought things on eBay? How many have voted in the Democratic Party? In that case, there are hackers, and probably Russian or Chinese hackers, that have your personal information. And, and this poses, they have also got the personal information of every, practically everybody that works in the US government. This is an, an incredible security breach. And, and I don't think that the shoe has fallen yet on what's gonna happen when all that information is out there and yet, there seems to be absolutely no response. Uh, I wrote an article once about uh, General Clapper's predecessor, and, and one of my sources said, there are 40,000 hackers in the Chinese army who speak English. How many hackers do we have who speak Mandarin? We should never get in a hacking war with the Chinese. But what are we to do? Uh, you know, this, we, we should think about the fact that individual citizens and American companies and the government itself are all under attack. And how is this next administration going to deal with it? Who is it? I'd love to start. We, we have a real expert here. And yeah. I'd like to prime the pump for him. Um, if we think the federal government can do this alone, or private sector can do this alone, it's the equivalent, and this is what um, 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 the director of the NSA, um, Alexander, always says, this is like the French thinking the Maginot Line is going to protect them from the Germans. Yeah. Right? And so, so we, this is, what is a digital act of war? And what is an appropriate countermeasure? I'm not asking because I don't. I, we, we, those aren't defined. Yeah. Now, a lot of the answer is, well, it depends. Is another country manipulating the utility grid of a country in active war? According to the UN, it is. 
That's happened. The, UN, uh, uh, the Russians did that to, to the Ukraine. Ukraine yeah. What was the response? Right? There wasn't one. So not only do we have to define a digital act of war, we have to define what are our red lines and what are our gray lines. And that starts with attribution. When do we say it was the, the Chinese 2PLA? And when do we say it was Colonel so-and-so within the, two, the, the Chinese 2PLA? So attribution is an important part about it because that also serves as a deterrence. Right? In, in the physical world, the North Koreans know that if they launch a missile into San Francisco, they know how we would respond. We know how we would respond. That's a physical-on-physical physical attack. But then when it comes to a digital-on-physical attack or a digital-on-digital digital attack, what's the appropriate countermeasure? Well, they did launch an attack on Sony. Sony. Yeah. And, uh, Sony you know, pictures. so in their capacity and their understanding of American popular mm -hmm. culture really floored me, frankly. Uh, I, I thought, I, I, up until that point, I think I've really been underestimating their, 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 their understanding of our country. But you pose the question. We have, you know, in this recent case with the Democratic Committee, the, the FBI is saying it's the Russians. They're just, they're just saying we know that it's the Russians. So, Ambassador, how would you propose that we respond? Well, first, I would agree with you completely. Uh, so I was kind of going through my specific target list. Um, I put North Korea at the top. I mean, mm -hmm. I... I agree completely with Admiral Inman that uh, uh, we, we have got to take on ISIS, but if you're the president and you're, you've got to think in terms of existential threats, uh, well, uh, a hostile country with nuclear weapons and a means to deliver them um, is, uh, is an existential threat. But right under that, I, I kind of had um, cyber war and Russia, and of course there are links between the two, yeah. in second place. Um, as a longer-term strategic problem for us, mm -hmm. as opposed to the immediate necessity to deal with Islamic State. Uh, now, we have made huge strides in recent years in our ability um, uh, to defend and, when necessary, attack in the mm -hmm. cyber domain. Uh, Will, Will Hurd has had a lot to do with this. Uh, uh, we now have a cyber command uh, you know, a decade ago, nobody would have even understood what that was. Uh, uh, so we are going to have to continue to up our game on this uh, because, as in so many arenas, uh, the attackers often have the advantage. Uh, and your, your, your statistic on uh, English-speaking Chinese yeah. uh, 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 cyber warriors is, is, is very telling. And then I would toss out, finally, um, an unresolved issue. As Congressman Hurd said, can't, this can't be dealt with just by government or just by the private sector. We have not found our way to common ground, largely between government mm -hmm. and the private sector. So we're going to have to continue a national debate on this. Uh, yeah, I, I, I get the privacy stuff. That's what makes this country special. Uh, but what we are seeing now is going to grow by an order of magnitude in terms of its threat to all of us. Bob? The problem has gotten a lot more complex with the explosion of social media. Uh, and looking back to the good old days, uh, 77 to, to 90, when I ran the National Security Agency, I got a lot of collaboration from U.S. industry. When I identified I had a problem related to it, they were quick, patriotic to be helpful. They also didn't have much business overseas. Mm -hmm. And now you look at a world where the major purveyors, two-thirds of their revenues are from outside the country. And they're more concerned about protecting access to those markets than they are in helping on a national security issue here. That's just the reality. Yeah. So finding our way through that isn't going to be easy. Yes, Julie. I, I would just add to what's already been said. I mean, the United States has worked a lot in recent years to develop all sorts of new tools and capabilities. We have the Cyber Command. There's a, we're better 
off now than we were years ago. But all that said, we don't have the doctrine we need. I mean, back to Will's point, we don't know the threshold at which we're prepared to use some of those fancy new tools. And the point that hasn't been raised yet is one of our strongest assets in the world that the Russians and the Chinese so wish they had is this very vast, rich network of alliances and partners that literally covers the globe. And what we haven't done to date is work with our partners and allies to ensure that they first have a fundamental understanding of the threat that they can at least, in a basic sense, map it and understand it. And secondly, begin to protect their own systems. And third, work with us to develop new strategies, new doctrines, new tools to deal with the threat. And we're so far behind in that regard. Only a handful of our allies have really made any attempt to keep up with us. And what it's creating is huge divides, particularly with our European partners, that have been unable to meet us even halfway in many regards. So NATO as an institution is trying to develop some new cyber capabilities yeah. and strategies. But we are back you know, a few years with some of our partners and allies. And we will be stronger if we can develop all of this with our partners and allies around the world. But in the meantime, as was already noted, our adversaries are seizing on this opportunity. And they know that it's by using these asymmetric tactics that they're always just below the threshold of action, uh, that it will not, in fact, trigger an all-out shooting war. If Russia rolls tanks into Estonia, as you noted, in certain cases, conventional military threats, our adversaries know exactly what would happen. But in the case of a medium-sized cyber attack across Estonia, or even just their capital, we're really left empty-handed in many ways. And so part of it is fortifying and strengthening the resilience of our partners and allies to reduce their vulnerabilities, but also reaching some agreement on the tools that we need going forward. But it's not Let just bad, if, if I may, yeah. of why this is so difficult to do. You think you just quickly do it. The reality is that every country uses cyber for espionage. It's much cheaper than putting people in place. So everybody engages in using cyber to collect information on us and on other countries. Plus, every country that has state-owned enterprises, that includes some of our allies and friends, they use that collection capability to help their companies compete at the international marketplace. We don't do that. What's a US corporation? Is it IBM with uh, our Intel with uh, laboratories all over the world? Or is it Toyota, Honda, which manufacture in this country? So that's why we made the conscious decision back in the late 70s. Days, we don't use cyber espionage commercially. But it's that disconnect that makes it far harder to write rules of engagement. When, Blair, will, this goes when, when do you do attack? What's the risk? if you undertake it. Yeah. And, and, and Larry, well. this goes back to your earlier point, right? This is, this is, these, we're talking about asymmetrical threats, mm -hmm. right? That, that's, that's the bottom line. So the crises, the, 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 the real problem that we have to be prepared for is we have to be for these asymmetrical threats, right? Whether it's in the cyber world, whether it's North Korea. Listen, North Korea has one million, more, one million folks in their military, right? But they're still going to probably lose a conventional war with South Korea. But they have long-range artillery, right? You think, think of howitzers that can shoot pretty far, right? You know, they have ballistic missiles, and they have a special, special operations force, right? That's how they're able to do things in a non-conventional way. You know, why, why, we also got to understand people's, um, the reasons for going in. Why did Russia go into Syria? Was it to support Bashar al-Assad, or was it to get an air base in southern Syria where they can project power into the Mediterranean and change the flow of shipping channels? Why did they go into the Ukraine? Was it because they really wanted that part of Ukraine back to the motherland, or was it to project power into the North Atlantic to change shipping lanes up into, up into the Arctic, right? So, so part of this goes back to one of the problems I think we have is we have to double down on human intelligence. Mm -hmm. and, and this is an area where I think our, our and I'm biased, 
because I'm a human intelligence guy, um, but we have to double down on really understanding the plans and intentions of our adversaries and so that we can help set better policy. So, well, I'm glad you brought the Syria up because I, one of the things that's intriguing to me, the Russian border is 600 miles from Syria. That's the distance from here to El Paso. Mm -hmm. So, and there are, I've heard thousands, but I can't accredit it, but maybe let's say hundreds of ISIS recruiters in Moscow. There are lots of Russians and Chechens, you know, that have gone into that. At least 2,000 Chechens are fighting with ISIS. It's, it's, so for Russia, this is an immense problem. Syria is their only Mediterranean port. It's like the last remnant of the Soviet empire. It's, you know, so I think in some respects, with all the questioning about uh, Russian hijinks and so on, in order to uh, bring this conflict to an end, Russia has to be a player. How do we play with Russia in that particular scenario? Well, um, Russia has played a bad hand brilliantly in Syria. I do believe that the, their primary aim in moving into Syria was to prop up Bashar al-Assad, mm. who was on the ropes. Yeah. He is their only Arab ally. Yeah. Uh, uh, so they came in, and if you get force projection and everything else, that's, that's good. But the motivation was to uh, prop part of any solution. Right now, they are the problem. Uh, and I, I have been, I've got to say it, I've been appalled by what uh, we've seen over the last couple of weeks of effort after effort, meeting after meeting between Secretary Kerry and Lavrov yeah. um, to construct ceasefires that it is absolutely clear it's going to fail. Um, the Iranians, the Russians, and the Syrian regime want Aleppo, um, and they are doing their damnedest to get it, killing thousands of Everybody, civilians yeah. every day. And to the Arab world, um, uh, in many cases, they think we've gone beyond appeasement to complicity. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is going to hurt us for years and years and years to come out there. So, yeah, the, the Russians have to be a part of a solution. Um, but unless we change the conditions, uh, we are going to see this nightmare film roll on reel after reel uh, with the Middle East seeing us as broadly responsible. Uh, so military force isn't going to answer the Syrian uh, civil war and crisis, but military force can reframe the, uh, uh, the nature of that crisis. I have been arguing uh, with total lack of effect for some time uh, for a no-fly zone. Uh, well, a no-fly zone probably is impossible to do right now right. with the Russians in, but there are other options. Well, haven't the Turks more or less established something like a no-fly zone? It's, it's, it's over yeah. fairly limited territory. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's another dimension of complexity. Uh, so I have said, let's, let's consider a, a no-bombing zone. That uh, if the Russians or the Syrians carry out airstrikes that result in significant uh, uh, civilian losses, we would respond against a pre-selected list of uh, Syrian military targets, Syrian military targets, mm -hmm. which, which could be prosecuted with offshore weapons. Um, uh, but unless or until something is done to change the dynamics on the ground, uh, this wholesale slaughter is going to go on and on and on, and we will increasingly be seen as responsible for it. Mm -hmm. uh, so negotiations, that's what I spent my life doing. Uh, that's how this will be resolved. But right now, the imbalance uh, between the regime and its allies and the opposition and its allies, if there are any, uh, uh, make a negotiation impossible. Well, can I push back a little bit on that? Because it, you know, having greater military involvement on our part doesn't guarantee victory for us. And it doesn't even sound like we're asking for victory. We are, because you know, we're not going to go in and invade the country. We, but we prolong the stalemate. 
And as, as long as a stalemate endures, more people get killed. Uh, isn't there some way of, uh, I mean, if you are an Alawite in Syria, you must be thinking this is an existential outcome for me. If it would easily be an ethnic cleansing, they would make the current killing look kind of tame. That is not at all what I'm suggesting. I, yeah. I am suggesting uh, uh, targeted military actions that will cause Tehran, Damascus, and Moscow to think, maybe we have to seriously negotiate this. Mm -hmm. Because right now, you've got that bloody stalemate that's tipping against the opposition. Uh, if, if we or others don't do something to change the alignments on the ground, uh, as bad as today's headlines are, it's going to get worse as they uh, increasingly pulverize East Aleppo. I don't think we should be seen as part of that. So, Bob, you had a... Let's face the reality that Putin will be reelected in 2018. Yeah. He had an overwhelming victory last Sunday. Yeah. Now has an absolute uh, supermajority right. in the Duma, his Congress. He'll be so he's going to be there till 2024 at least mm -hmm. for us to deal with. Uh, we have no common interest. Mm -hmm. The minuscule economic activity. Mm. One thing he understands is force. And where he's made his gains, he's willing to use force, to gamble with using force, I think unwisely, but nonetheless he's been willing to do it to get what he wants. And it's the image that we are very reluctant to use mm -hmm. that makes this a more complex problem. Well, I get very troubled with uh, putting China and Russia in the same basket. With China, there are vast areas for collaboration because of the economies. Yeah. Yeah. First and second largest economies in the world. Mm -hmm. Places where we can, in fact, interact. When we talk to them directly about cyber on the private sector, they appear to have backed down on that. They recognize mm -hmm. that for us that was a, a crossing point. So we need, it. I'm not proposing going back to the Cold War to try to contain Russia, but we have to persuade Mr. Putin that if pushed, we would be willing to use force. Julie? Well, I was just going to add to echo the ambassador's point about changing the dynamic of the political negotiations by inserting either the threat of force or the use of force. We already have an instance where we saw that work. And I think when you go back to the red line decision, when we understood that the Syrians were using chemical weapons on their own people, and the president was entertaining the idea of using force, we did not, in fact, go the direction I think many anticipate. Talk about that, and I have views on that. But putting that aside for a minute, what that did afterwards, even though Obama opted not to use force, we then were able to have a conversation with the Russians at the table and Assad to talk about eliminating all the CW in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, would we have had that type of conversation had the use of force not been on the table? No. We'll never know. Mm -hmm. My guess is the answer is no. Uh, and so in this case, I, I think both to alter the shape of the political negotiations, you have to put force on the table with credibility. And secondly, I'm with the ambassador in looking at a no bombing zone or a safe zone. A lot of people brush that aside because they say, well, Julie, are you prepared if the Russians fly right into the zone? Are you going to shoot down that Russian plane? And of course the answer is no, we're not prepared to shoot down a Russian plane. <laughs> But yes. you then say to yourself, what other asymmetric measures do we have on hand to respond to that violation of the safe zone? And that's exactly what the ambassador is getting at. We can be just as creative as they can. They have a lot of interest. They have a lot of interest in Ukraine and elsewhere. We have pain points that we can push if the Russians decide to come into that zone. And I think the ambassador is exactly right. Present them with the list up front. We'll take out half of Syria's airfields if you guys, it's not about you, mm. it's about Syria mm. or somewhere else that you care about. And so I think we're not, we're not challenging ourselves to think 
creatively about this. And the last thing I'll say is I think we have put far too much faith in the Russians' ability to shape Assad's behavior. Maybe in 2012, he could pull every lever and have the guy do you know, whatever the heck he wanted him to do. But today, let's not forget, he's got to answer to the Iranians. There are lots of other players here. And I really question our ability to shape the opposition in any meaningful way. But I also question Russia's ability to really alter course with Assad himself, as we've seen with the ceasefire in recent days that's gone up in smoke. Yeah, Larry, there's, there's a basic question that I haven't heard an answer to. What does victory in Syria look like? Mm -hmm. what, what, what day do we celebrate? Right? And in, until we understand what we think victory is, right, it's hard to have those creative solutions on how to get there. Yeah. And, and, the, and when you negotiate with someone, both sides have to have something the other side wants. And so what is the Russians' idea of victory in Syria? And is there any overlap? And if there's overlap, that may be the grounds on which we can have some engagement. And, and I agree with Admiral Inman that you can't put Russia and China in the same box. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to North Korea, chi China and us have a similar goal with North Korea. But the Chinese do not believe, they, they think they need a buffer between us and South Korea um, in order because they don't want to have US and South Korean troops on their on their border. How do we change their opinion that that is not that should not be a concern of theirs because that is not in our interest. So so we have to look at what days are we and then once we figure out what day we celebrate what happens on day 2. <laughs> Because that's where we we have um, we have not always been um, yeah, the, the following best. up. So I'm gonna just say I'm gonna tell the audience that I'm gonna ask last one last question, and there'll be a chance. To, where are there microphones out here? There are. Okay. Um, so you can go ahead and, and line up, and I'm just gonna. This, my question has to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna let the audience take over. Um, <laughs> I, I, I won't We're going to have to group them together. Uh, do we have a microphone for these people? All right, here we go. This gentleman, and we'll go back and forth. So I'll go first. Let's take a bunch right, Good afternoon. My name is Hussein Al-Khafaji, and I'm a, I'm, my name is Hussein Al-Khafaji, and I'm a student here at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, a national spotlight for homeland security is the Syrian refugee crisis. Americans are overwhelmingly against the inclusion of Syrian refugees in our society, based primarily uh, a lot on fear-mongering and misinformation. There was a report that the likelihood that an American would be killed by a Syrian refugee is one in 3.6 billion, according to Vox. And according to Huffington Post, we're more likely to die by a lawnmower, selfies, vending machines, and the police. Right. So are we acting shamefully on the international stage when our Congress overrides Obama's veto on admitting refugees, and why can't we accept the ethical and long-standing promise to be a safe haven for the more unfortunate? So refugees, uh, the entire Palestinian diaspora was 750,000. That's where I was 000. trying to go with uh, the last remark before going So we questions. got 5 million Syrian refugees. More How should this population be More than. More than. And that is, that's a problem we could attack now. Yeah. And we don't have to have Russia or anybody else. Exactly. We do need to pull in a lot of others. If you think back in history, it was the Palestinian refugee camps with no hopes that became the breeding ground mm -hmm. for many of the jihadists who are doing terrorists. Now is the time to bring educational opportunity to those youngsters who are in those refugee camps. All right, Congressman, are you doing that up in Washington? Uh, we're going to find out this week. Um, I, I believe the Senate's going to vote on it. Um, I don't know if, if, if the House is. And there is, there is battle lines being drawn on this particular issue. Mm -hmm. And again, this is, this is part of focus on the root cause. Uh, in cause of having these five million refugees is because of Bashar al-Assad in, in Syria. Well, and, well, I agree with that, but the reality is there are millions yeah. out there, yeah. and those kids, if they don't see some hope, Absolutely. they're going to flood to Europe, as a million already have, or they're going to be anti-U.S., not anti-others, through right. their whole adult well, life. Well, so I would say I think that's more important then starting out, what we're going to do with Assad? Yeah, but but Jordan Jordan's population has increased 20% yeah. because of this issue. So it's yeah. not just going to be anti-American. They're going to be anti-Jordanian. They're going to be anti 
Turk, because these are these are the folks that are, are having the problem. Right. If we would have gone to a, a no-fly zone a little bit earlier, would this have sort of would this have presented some of this problem? But, but I, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. Mm. Go ahead. Look, let's. let's uh, no, I, no, I, are, are you keep in mind? We got a lot of people who have questions. I, let me just jump in quickly to to get really to your question. What is the U.S. doing? Well, the great state of Texas uh, announced yesterday that it was opting out of the yeah. refugee resettlement program. Yeah. How embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure it was well received in some quarters, in Mosul, yeah. in Raqqa, yeah. Yeah. because right. we're making Islamic State's case for it that we are fundamentally opposed to Arabs and Muslims. Boy, this is gonna cost us in the long run. So it's Canada uh, yeah. took in 35,000 Syrian refugees, and we're congratulating ourselves because we got to 10. It's incredible. And the right. amount of misinformation out there is absolutely shameful. Yeah. The, the lack one. of appreciation of the vetting process that we put refugees through, often a two-year process. Mm -hmm. I'm flabbergasted by the amount of misinformation. And you compare it to what our allies have done in Europe, the fact that the European project is teetering on the brink because of this refugee crisis, and we have done hardly anything to deal with this. I agree, 10,000 Both Democrats a celebration. It's mm. shameful in my mind, and we should do much more. The last thing to add is that both Democrats and Republicans have rallied behind not allowing refugees into the country, so it isn't like yeah. a All right, over here. Yeah, no, I know. Um, good afternoon. My name is uh, Georgi Tatarinsov. Um, I wanted to basically ask about the NATO, NATO expansion. Um, in 1989, after the fall of Berlin Wall, Russia was promised that there would be no NATO bases east of Berlin Wall. Now they're basically right on the border of Russia. So what do you expect Russia to do but basically to respond? It's basically seen as a threat. And when we talk about civilian, civilian casualties, how many have we killed due to either financial or militant regime change backing? Well, let's just keep it okay, on the one I question. Take, can yeah. I take... Yeah. So the, we told Russia that we would not permanently base U.S. troops in Central and Eastern Europe. We still do not have permanent basing in Central and Eastern Europe. We have inserted a rotational presence in those regions because of their aggressive behavior in Ukraine and Georgia. Had they not invaded those two countries and continue to be present in those two countries, the United States and NATO, trust me, would not feel compelled to have a rotational presence there. The fact of the matter is, I was at the Pentagon when we took the two brigade combat teams out of Europe in 2012. And we did that because we felt that Europe was on a positive path, that it was heading towards whole, free, and at peace, and that we would have a more bright a brighter relationship with our friends in Moscow. As it turns out, that hasn't been the case since Russia went into Ukraine, and now NATO has shifted its focus back to collective defense, and yes, it has inserted those rotational presence there. I do not think anyone will see a permanent presence in those countries anytime soon. NATO allies understand how provocative that can be. We've understood how displeased the Russians are with the current rotational presence, but I think we have to understand that the reason why NATO has changed its presence, its tactics, and its defensive measures in regards to Russia is because of Russia, not because of any grand plan to isolate the Russians or to somehow capitalize on the fact that they're a country that's in decline. And so I think this mythology that somehow NATO is surrounding Russia and trying to contain it and trying to be this rich adversary, you know, it's just, it strikes me as, you know, it just complete mythology. Uh, I can't imagine NATO doing any of what it's done in the Wales summit at any of the recent, the Warsaw summit, had Russia not gone into Ukraine. Over here. Well said. Hi, my name is Nolan Melson. And speak I, a little louder. Hi, my name is Nolan Melson, and I'm a former air and missile defense artillery officer, and uh, therefore, sense theory is very important to me, and I'm also a tech startup um, co-founder. Therefore, common sense immigration reform is also very important for me. Um, so this question is mainly directed to you, Congressman Hurd. Um, with Donald Trump advocating the mass deportation of 11 million illegal immigrants, um, which would cost us $600 billion in new government spending and, and uh, the displacement of millions of, of immigrant families, um, what is your standpoint on mass deportation? Do you, do you advocate for it? And if not, what is your alternative? 
No, I don't advocate for it. And, and here, here's how you do border security. Building a wall from sea to shining sea is not the, it's, it's the most expensive and least effective way to do border security, okay? Um, I, I, represent, I represent 820 miles of the border. I have more border than anybody else, right? This, this, is, this is, yes, it's, it's like, it's like seven, 76% of our, our border with Mexico and the U.S. Um, these are not two communities. It's one community separated by an international boundary, right? And so there's all kinds of way that we can use technology, and we gotta adjust our tactics, techniques, and procedures at each different area. What you need in San Diego is very different than what you need in El Paso, is very different than what you need in Harlingen, right? And there are 19 criminal organizations that are operating in Mexico. Many of those organizations are not on the NIPIF, the National Intelligence Priority Framework, where we should be doing collection on that. We, there are many entities within the, the Mexican government that we should be working on to focus those 19 organizations and push our border even further onto the southern border of, of Mexico. And the other reality, you're in a tech startup, the United States have, has benefited from the brain drain of every other country for the last couple of decades. Let's continue that. <laughs> and let's benefit from the hard-working drain as well, too. But let's get you here. If you're going to be a, a productive member of our society, let's get you here quickly, but let's do it legally. And, you know, Ambassador Croc and I can go in, in length about, you know, our visa process. Uh, I stamped visas <laughs> as one of my cover jobs when I was in the CIA. Uh -huh. But those are, those are the, 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 the big rocks, yeah. if you will, on how we deal with this problem. Over here. Thank you. Hello, good afternoon. Um, my name is Marco Chacon. I am a, a Lone Star College uh, in Cypher, Houston, um, a sophomore student. And I am going to address one of the topics uh, Mr. Wright addressed earlier at the beginning of this, of this session, which is how, is, this is an open question for everyone, um, how should the, new, the next president of the United States should address the current situation in Venezuela where my people, its people, are uh, currently experiencing high levels of poverty, scarcity, um, along with many, um, extreme levels of corruption in every level of the country's infrastructure. All right, I'm gonna, I, we're going to have just time for like, if you don't ask a question, but I'm going to get your question, and, and then we'll try to answer both of them if, if you don't mind. Okay, my question is a general question, especially for Ambassador and uh, Congressman. Speak up a little bit. My, my question is basically for Ambassador and the Congressman, because you guys have been out in the field in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq. So do you guys uh, are well aware of SIV visa program for the Afghan and Iraqi interpreters? And uh, do you guys see that Afghani interpreters or Iraqi interpreters who are serving with the U.S. government in Iraq or Afghanistan giving them SIV visas and bringing them to the U.S., does that pose any threat to national security uh, from those interpreters that, that are like born and raised in Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, brought and built up with that atmosphere over there? And uh, my question for uh, uh, Admiral is that, do you think what Edward Snowden did was uh, different than what Hillary Clinton did to uh, damage American national security, you know? All right. We got to, uh, I'm afraid those are going to be all the questions, so here we are. Let me respond directly on Venezuela. If we were to unilaterally try to bring about the change, we'd get anti-U.S. all over Latin America. So we need to do it collaboratively, collectively. Let's find out if the OAS still has any life in it and can work. And the goal ought to be to get all of the members of OAS to press for authorizing the referendum in the process. But it needs to be collective. If we do it by ourselves, what we're going to do is spur another wave of anti-Yankee all over Latin America. Uh, let, me, let me speak to the interpreter, the special immigrant visa issue. Uh, I, I've been pretty active on that. Uh, those of us who were out in Iraq uh, or Afghanistan know what a critical role those interpreters play. Uh, you know, we're not going to have many more force-on-force -force, uh, military engagements to be a big, messy political military world. And the role of interpreters in that, to 
move into a village, to sit down with the village leaders to make clear on both sides what intents and expectations are, it's vital. Uh, we, we cannot fight a complex campaign without interpreters. And sadly, with Congress's failure thus far to reauthorize the uh, special immigrant visas for Afghans, what we are telling the world is, um, you come fight with us, risk your lives to meet our objectives, and we'll let you dangle out there until the enemy you created by siding with us shoots you. And that is happening day after day after day, uh, because we are wrapped up in some fiction that people who risk their lives for our success in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq are actually a threat to us. Uh, if somebody can help me with the logic of that, I'd be grateful. <laughs> we didn't behave that way after Vietnam. We brought in 175,000 people that have worked with us. Who and, have helped this economy yeah, yeah, grow indeed. over the years. Yeah. Well, yeah. listen, I want to thank all of you. This has been a terrific, I think we solved everything. That's right? yeah, it's all okay. done. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>